Welcome to some very famous people you've never really heard of. Bite-sized biographies of the famous, the infamous, and the quirky in less than an hour. My name is Philip D. Gibbons, and there is more information about me, this podcast, and a bibliography at someveryfamouspeople.com. There are also photographs of many of the individuals and items mentioned in this podcast. At the conclusion of part one of this presentation, there will be additional suggestions concerning further information about today's subject, Truman Capote, Richard Hickok, Perry Smith, and In Cold Blood. Now let's get started with our story about Truman Capote and In Cold Blood. On November 14, 1959, Richard Dick Hickok and Perry Smith began driving from the Kansas City area, their destination, the tiny hamlet of Holcomb, Kansas, approximately 50 miles from the Colorado border. They were intent on the large farm owned by Herbert Clutter, a prominent farmer and businessman in the region. Dick Hickok was a recently paroled ex-con who received a tip while in the Kansas State Penitentiary from his cellmate, William Floyd Wells Jr., also known as Floyd Wells, that Herb Clutter had a safe that contained substantial amounts of cash, frequently as much as $10,000 at a time to pay both hired help and to handle the expenses of running an extensive agricultural operation. Hickok recruited another prison acquaintance, Perry Smith, to help pull off the heist. The two men arrived at Clutter's River Valley Farm shortly after midnight on November 15th and entered the farm's main residence through an unlocked side door. They woke up the sleeping family, which included Herb Clutter's wife, Bonnie, his daughter, Nancy, 16, and his son, Kenyon, 15. Initially, they separated Herb Clutter from his family and grilled him about the safe. Completely mystified, the farmer insisted that he had no idea what they were talking about until Hickok and Smith decided to tie up each family member individually. The two males were conveyed to the basement and restrained, the two females tied up and confined to their bedrooms. Subsequently, Hickok especially meticulously combed the entire household in search of the supposed safe, Smith quickly coming to the conclusion that no safe existed. Approximately $40 in household cash was located, as well as four of the cluttered children's silver dollars, but it became clear that no safe and no cash bonanza was on hand. Previously, Hickok repeatedly instilled in Perry Smith the concept that no witnesses should remain, and Smith, with a motivation that still remains unclear, complied with this wish, first slashing Herb Clutter's throat with a large hunting knife, and then shooting him in the head at point-blank range. The three other Clutters were also then subsequently shot to death, the killers leaving with only the small amount of cash, a pair of binoculars, and a portable radio. Smith and Hickok then spent the next six weeks, initially in Mexico, but ultimately fleeing back to the United States and a circuitous flight across the Midwest, Southeast, 
and Southwest until alert police spotted their stolen car in Las Vegas and arrested both men and informed the Kansas Bureau of Investigation and the Garden City, Kansas Police Department of this apprehension. The two killers were taken back to Garden City, the township that included Holcomb, and placed on trial on March 22nd. After only a week of testimony, they were convicted by a jury that deliberated for only 40 minutes, the townspeople appalled and enraged by the senseless crime. Evidence provided personally by Floyd Wells and blood-stained boot marks left at the crime scene by footwear still in the killer's possession when they were arrested sealed their fate. Despite the growing scrutiny of the death penalty that typically lengthened the capital punishment appeals process, the U.S. Supreme Court refused to hear Hickok and Smith's appeal on three occasions, and the two men were eventually executed on April 14, 1965, five and a half years after the murders. Despite the shocking nature of their crimes at the time, Hickok and Smith would have probably faded into utter obscurity, especially as similar behavior became more routine in American society, were it not for the efforts of a New York-based journalist and writer named Truman Capote. In 1959, the Clutter murders were publicized across the U.S., and Capote read of the incident in a brief article in the New York Times. At the time, Capote was enjoying popular success after the 1958 publication of Breakfast at Tiffany's, a novella concerning a young high society girl involved in the New York social scene. He immediately decided to pursue the clutter story, arriving in Garden City only days after the murders, accompanied by Harper Lee, his childhood friend and the author of the about-to-be-released literary sensation, to kill a mockingbird. Capote's upbringing was troubled and unstable. He was born Truman Persons on September 20, 1924, in New Orleans, Louisiana. Although his father, Arch Persons, came from a prominent Alabama family, he would never amount to much more than a glorified con man who literally ran out of money on his honeymoon. And Capote's mother, Lily Mae Falk, married Persons at the age of 17 merely to escape the small Alabama town of Monroeville, where she grew up. So broke was Persons that after the abbreviated honeymoon, the couple was forced to reside in the home of one of Lily May's Monroeville aunts, her parents having passed away several years earlier. Before Lily May could make the obvious decision to get out of the marriage, she was pregnant with Truman. Arch got a sales job in New Orleans, and the young family moved there. Unfortunately, Lily had no interest in Arch or the marriage, engaging openly with other men, while her husband cashed bad checks and borrowed money to make ends meet. Both parents had little time for Truman, frequently dumped on a relative for weeks at a time or locked in a hotel room while they hit the town. Eventually, at age six, Truman was permanently deposited with Lily May's relatives in Monroeville. Three of her aunts lived together with their brother in a large house, but the dominant figure in this household was Jenny Falk, who owned a prominent haberdashery in the town's courthouse square and had also invested well in local banks. Jenny's domineering ways, forcing the other two sisters to either work in her business or take care of domestic chores, meant for constant bickering, which prompted their brother Bud 
to either lock himself in his bedroom or head to the outskirts of town to the farm he inherited and managed. A second brother, Howard, lived with his wife on another nearby farm, but Bud and Howard hadn't spoken in years after a fight over the family inheritance. This despite Howard and his wife's weekly attendance at Sunday dinner. The rest of this domestic mix consisted of two elderly black females, Aunt Liza, the cook, and Anna Stabler, a domestic who lived in a shack in the backyard. Because Truman had spent so much time in the Falk household already, this seemingly bizarre environment required no adjustment. Spending most of his time in the house, he gravitated towards the ever-present sister, Nanny Falk, nicknamed Sook, responsible for the housekeeping. His only friend during this time period was the youngest daughter of the Lee family, who lived next door, named Nell. Years later, this friend achieved literary fame using her middle name Harper, adopting the pen name of Harper Lee. Surprisingly, the querulous Falk female contingent became quite fond of their new addition to the family. One of the sisters writing to Lily May's mother that, quote, We do enjoy having Truman. He is the sunshine of our home, unquote. Despite this acceptance, Truman was not as enamored with his newfound family perpetually hoping that his mother, who occasionally dropped in for a brief visit, would suddenly see the light and take him back into her life, her repeated rejection leaving a lifelong emotional scar. Even more disappointing were visits from his father, which featured all sorts of promises of expensive vacations, pets, and material goods. But none of these promises ever amounted to anything, and even at a young age, Truman realized that his father was a huckster and a blowhard who couldn't even afford to buy him lunch. Lily May eventually met and married Joseph Capote in 1932, a development that provided some stability to Truman's relationship with at least one parent, his mother. First, Lily May went to court to get sole custody, Arch now flirting with actual jail time over check forgery. Successful in petitioning the Alabama court, she then proceeded to have Joseph Capote formally adopt Truman in New York City. This request granted legally in February of 1935, the former Truman Persons, now Truman Garcia Capote. While Lily May went to great lengths to retrieve her child, the relationship between mother and son remained difficult. Thrilled to finally access a life she aspired to since her teenage years, Lily May began to live it up to the fullest via the affluence of Joseph Capote. She also obliterated any ties to her old life, changing her name from Lily May to Nina in keeping with her newfound sophistication. Unlike her first marriage, Nina was passionate about her second husband but refused to have another child, openly stating that she knew it would be just like Truman. This an acknowledgment of her son's ultra-femininity, even at a young age. Some of his Monroeville relatives subsequently commented that while other children matured physically, Capote remained childlike in stature and appearance, and his voice never changed from what it was in the fourth grade. Nevertheless, he was quickly enrolled in one of Manhattan's most exclusive private schools, the Trinity School, and when he only produced mediocre grades, was sent off for one year to a military academy, St. John's, in Osning, New York. Today, the thought of Truman Capote at a military academy seems an unbelievable plot for a second-rate comedy, but it was a genuine nightmare of harassment, sexual and otherwise. 
that mercifully lasted one year before Capote returned to Trinity. Upon his return, his grades deteriorated further, most likely because Capote had already made the decision to become a writer, a predilection that for him rendered schoolwork irrelevant. In 1939, Capote's life was uprooted again when Joe and Nina decided to move to Greenwich, Connecticut. Although his already flamboyant personality attracted attention, his academic performance was dreadful, his only interest creative writing, on which he focused all of his efforts. His home life was also depressing, his mother both abusive and alcoholic, his father occasionally but blatantly involving himself in adultery. Perhaps hoping a change in scenery might ameliorate such unhappiness, the Capotes decided to move back to New York in June of 1942, a month after Truman's class graduated, although because of poor grades, he did not receive a diploma. He eventually graduated from the Franklin School, now the Dwight School, but had no intention of attending college. Instead, he spent two years as a copy boy at the New Yorker, mistakenly believing that he could eventually get promoted, not understanding that such a prestigious magazine would not possibly allow such a career path. He was either fired or quit the New Yorker and then returned to Monroeville and a stint in New Orleans, returning to New York with a suitcase full of short stories. Supposedly, Capote first approached Mademoiselle magazine, in those days a frequent publisher of short fiction, and when asked dismissively by a receptionist to leave his story for consideration, he responded by sitting down and replying, quote, I'll wait while they read it, unquote. Although that particular effort was not accepted, Capote's next submission, entitled Merriam, was published in June of 1945 to great acclaim and attention, and Capote followed this up with publication of numerous stories in Harper's Bazaar, The Atlantic, Story, and even The New Yorker. He was offered a contract to write a novel for Random House by publisher Bennett Cerf, which resulted in the best-selling Other Voices, Other Rooms. Capote learned a valuable lesson when a bizarre publicity photograph of him posing oddly in front of a collection of puppets generated as much attention and controversy as the book itself, already causing a stir with its frank discussion of homosexuality. Upon reaching the bestseller list in 1948, Capote never looked back. He wrote plays, musicals, a nonfiction account of a trip to the Soviet Union, and even collaborated with John Huston on the screenplay for the Humphrey Bogart film Beat the Devil. Luckily, he achieved financial independence before the revelation that his stepfather was subsidizing his and Nina's luxurious lifestyle by both embezzling and self-dealing as the treasurer of his employer, a large textile manufacturer. Eventually, Joe Capote would do prison time and was ruined professionally, Nina Capote committing suicide in 1954 as a result of this reversal of fortune. Fortunately, the scandal had no effect on Capote's career arc. By the close of the decade, he produced Breakfast at Tiffany's, which established him as one of the preeminent writers on the American publishing scene. As he headed to western Kansas in late 1959, Truman Capote was intent on creating what he called, quote, a nonfiction novel, unquote, an entirely new literary genre. The lies of the two eventual subject of this effort, Dick Hickok and Perry Smith were polar opposites of the man ultimately responsible for their immortality. 
Richard Eugene Dick Hickok was born on June 6, 1931, in Kansas City, Missouri. His parents, Walter and Eunice, were typically devout, hard-working, lower-middle-class Kansas Midwesterners who raised their family on a 44-acre farm in the small town of Edgerton. Walter Hickok worked as a mechanic by day and farmed his acreage during off hours. Industrious, he built the farm's main family residence by himself. His oldest of two sons, Dick, was popular and lettered in several sports, but Dick's parents were unable to provide the financial means to send Dick to college after his graduation in 1949. Instead, he went to work for the Santa Fe Railroad and pursued another interest, women. Many surmised that the critical event in Hickok's life was a serious car accident in 1950 in which he was almost killed, spent days in the hospital, and emerged with disfigured facial features and possibly permanent brain damage. Married at age 19 to his 16-year-old girlfriend, who produced two children, Hickok seems to have undergone a personality change in which he suddenly began gambling, kiting checks, and living beyond his means. He also managed to conceive a child with another woman, prompting a divorce from his first wife. Saying that he wanted to, quote, do the right thing, unquote, he married the mother of his third child, but continued to subsidize menial jobs, mostly as an auto mechanic, with petty crime. Whether it was for writing bad checks or stealing a rifle from a private residence, Hickok finally caught his first five-year jail sentence in 1956 for cheating and defrauding. He was paroled from Kansas State Penitentiary on August 13, 1959. During his incarceration, his second wife divorced him. If Dick Hickok was the proverbial bad seed from a good family, Perry Smith's background and upbringing was much darker and pitiless. Perry Edward Smith was born in Huntington, Nevada on October 27, 1928. Perhaps appropriately, his birthplace is now a ghost town. His father, John Tex Smith, and mother, Florence Flo Buckskin, were rodeo riders who performed in small towns across the northern Great Plains. Described as a full-blooded Cherokee by Capote, Flo was in fact Shoshone Paiute. In 1929, Smith's parents moved to Juneau, Alaska, where Tex hustled the living as a bootlegger. Both parents were alcoholic, Tex violently abusive to both his wife and his four children, and frequently absent for lengthy periods of time. During these absences, Flo engaged in numerous adulterous affairs, eventually precipitating an especially violent beating at the hands of Tex in 1935, behavior that convinced Flo to flee to San Francisco. Usually in an alcoholic haze, she was unable to care for her children, who were eventually placed in a series of institutions and Catholic orphanages, Perry already arrested by the age of eight. Subjected to repeated physical abuse, especially at the hands of the nuns he frequently encountered, Smith evolved into an angry and aggressive loner, constantly in conflict with others. Eventually, his father intervened, removing Perry from San Francisco and taking him throughout Nevada and Alaska, settling in the latter state until Perry's enlistment at age 16 in the Merchant Marine. After that, in 1948, he enlisted in the U.S. Army, serving in both Japan and Korea, and receiving the Bronze Star for action as a combat engineer during the pivotal 
Battle of Inchon. But despite his honorable discharge, he frequently fought with other soldiers and civilians and spent lengthy periods in the stockade. He intended to return to Alaska and live with his father, but most likely because of their tempestuous relationship, he moved to Washington State in the summer of 1952, and there he suffered a serious motorcycle accident that almost forced the amputation of both legs and left him with a permanent limp, constant pain, and an aspirin addiction. While in Washington, he also fathered an illegitimate son who was raised by an army buddy as his own child. Smith then spent a year convalescing in a hospital before returning to Alaska, where he hoped to reunite with his father. They built a hunting lodge together in a remote part of the state called the Trapper's Den Lodge, but had a serious and violent falling out in 1955 when the lodge failed. Smith drifted across the Midwest and with a partner broke into an office in Phillipsburg, Kansas, where they stole anything of value. Arrested after a traffic stop, Perry and his accomplice broke out of jail, stole a car, and it was New York City before Perry was apprehended by the FBI and taken back to Kansas to face the music. In 1956, he received five to ten years for the previous burglary and interstate flight. It is at the Kansas State Penitentiary that he met Dick Hickok at some point sharing a cell. By then, his mother was dead from alcoholism and two siblings had also committed suicide. His eldest sister had specifically and deliberately severed any contact, later telling police that she was afraid of him after he became angry when she refused to help when he experienced economic difficulty. When Truman Capote arrived in Kansas, Smith and Hickok were not yet on law enforcement's radar. Capote's initial intent was to write about the reaction of the town and its inhabitants, but he had at least enough self-awareness to understand that it would be next to impossible for someone with both his New York and blatantly homosexual persona to ingratiate himself to the appropriate degree. He enlisted Harper Lee as his partner in journalism and set about trying to induce the locals, both law enforcement and private citizens, into sharing any valuable insight. His initial wardrobe of a pillbox-style hat, long sheepskin coat, and scarf that hung all the way to his feet did him no favors, but Harper Lee seems to have helped him win over his most productive source and access to important information. Alvin Dewey, as a member of the Kansas Bureau of Investigation, or KBI, the state agency with jurisdiction over the investigation, and a resident of Garden City, was logically designated to coordinate the investigation with other assigned members of the KBI. Initially repelled by Capote, Dewey eventually was charmed especially by Harper Lee, who also became friendly with Dewey's wife, Marie. And it wasn't long before Capote and Lee were getting regular invitations to dinner. Alvin Dewey later claimed that he never gave Capote any special treatment or information. But that turned out to be fundamentally untrue. Ultimately, Alvin Dewey is treated as the central figure behind the clutter investigation, and Capote not only distorted and enhanced Dewey's role, he also minimized or ignored those who were not as cooperative or even hostile. This was not unintentional. 
For 19 days after the murders, the KBI and Garden City Police Department were under intense pressure to at least make progress in the clutter investigation. But other than a daily meeting of all the law enforcement entities involved, including the Finney County Prosecutor Dwayne West, various KBI agents, including Alvin Dewey, and members of the Garden City Police Department, nothing concrete emerged. Unbeknownst to this group, a convict languishing in the Kansas State Penitentiary was also experiencing his own form of duress. William Floyd Wells Jr., also known as Floyd Wells, shared a cell with Dick Hickok after Perry Smith was paroled. During their time together, Wells allegedly told Hickok about the Clutter Farm, Herb Clutter's operation, and possibly a safe that frequently contained as much as $10,000 in cash. Only two days after the crime, Wells heard on the radio of the murder of the Clutter family. For weeks, he remained silent, afraid that if he was identified as a snitch, other convicts would seek retribution. Ultimately, according to Capote's version in In Cold Blood, Wells, bothered by his conscience, especially in light of how kindly Herb Clutter and his family were to him, and encouraged by a devoutly religious fellow convict who engineered a process that allowed Wells to be summoned to the warden's office without generating suspicion among the prison population, Wells was able to report what he knew about the crime. Additionally, In Cold Blood describes Alvin Dewey as immediately reacting by dispatching one of his investigators, Harold Nye, on the evening of December 5, 1959, to the Hickok Farm, where he supposedly spoke at length with Dick's parents, merely about a parole violation, and also surreptitiously observed the shotgun used in the murders. This account is further embroidered to bolster Dewey's role in a conversation discussing the Wells revelations with his wife and his new knowledge of suspects Hickok and Smith, Dewey exclaims in In Cold Blood, quote, Funny, the past three weeks, that's the angle we've concentrated on, tracking down every man who ever worked on the clutter place. Now, the way it's turned out, it just seems like a piece of luck. But a few days more and we'd have hit this Wells, found he was in prison. We would have got the truth then. Hell yes. Unquote. Almost from the date of its publication, Capote's methodology, accuracy, and even honesty in composing in cold blood has been questioned. Distortions, exaggerations, and even complete fabrications have been identified repeatedly throughout the book. Some are merely minor details or asides, but in this particular case, Capote has completely gone off the rails, most likely to not only increase the stature of Alvin Dewey, but also to cover up the agent's errant process, both before and subsequent to receiving this information. Present at the investigators' meeting in the county sheriff's office when the Wells tip was first received, Prosecutor Dwayne West recalls that Dewey's response was that the Wells tip was bogus. It couldn't be them because Dewey believed and had operated previously under the mistaken premise that the motive was not robbery and that the murderers were locals who had some kind of grudge against Herb Clutter. He did not even bother to interview Wells, sending other KBI agents instead. So dismissive was he of the tip. Finally, after meeting with Wells, Five days later, not one, 
but three KBI agents and one local sheriff's deputy armed with a search warrant appeared at the Hickok Farm intent on discovering evidence connected to the clutter murders and not a parole violation. They seized bloody clothing and even fired the weapon they found wanting to generate used shotgun cartridges for ballistics purposes. Additionally specious was the claim that Dewey would have eventually found Wells anyway. Although Wells told Hickok that his stint at the farm was in the 50s, he actually worked there from June 1948 until January 1949. No specific records have ever turned up concerning Wells' employment, either during the investigation or subsequently, and a ranch manager had virtually no recollection of Wells. Alvin Dewey would have never happened upon Wells without the convict coming forward. Another interesting aside, having been employed in 1948, Wells could not have supplied information about the Clutter residence, as it was not built until after this date, and despite Dick Hickok's vehemence that Wells gave him specifics and even a diagram of the house and safe location, such an assertion is quite confounding. From the moment of the Wells revelation, the investigation suddenly transformed from an unfocused attempt to gather information into a specific manhunt. Hickok and Smith's initial plan to hide out in Mexico foundered over a lack of money and any possible means to acquire any funds in Mexico City. With only his ability to pass bad checks in an environment that he was comfortable in, Hickok was actually reckless enough to, in a stolen car, dragged the two fugitives back to the Kansas City area, escaping only hours after local authorities became aware of their presence. They then headed to Florida and reversed course with a meandering trek that finally led to their arrest in Las Vegas. This arrest was most likely the result of the efforts of KBI investigator Harold Nye, who, in the interim after the Wells revelation, had traveled to Las Vegas to question individuals who might have encountered Perry Smith while Smith stayed in the city prior to returning to Kansas. Nye also met extensively with members of the Las Vegas Police Department and impressed upon them that Smith especially was known to frequent the city and Smith and Hickok's apprehension was extremely important. While the attentive Las Vegas patrolman who spotted the stolen plate and vehicle deserved credit, most likely they were focused as a result of information transmitted through the department, the result of Harold Nye's diligence. His efforts helped produce the critical moment in the case, Hickok and Smith not wanting to drag a lot of miscellaneous items with them when they returned from Mexico and had to resort to hitchhiking, mailed a box to post office general delivery in Las Vegas containing, among other things, the boots they wore the night they killed the clutters. Their arrest occurred only a few minutes later, and had the police nabbed them sooner, these critical items that physically linked them to the murder scene might never have been recovered. These boots could connect the two killers to the crime because of the efforts of another investigator, not Alvin Dewey, but Garden City Assistant Police Chief Richard Rolletter. One of the first police officials to access the crime scene was also the chief photographer for the department. Rolletter intelligently used a flashlight on the large cardboard box recovered from underneath the body of Herb Clutter, and the investigator's photos revealed evidence not visible to the naked eye.
In this case, not only did Rolletter meticulously reproduce a bloody boot print that could be easily matched to Perry Smith's boot, he also reproduced dusty but distinctive diamond-shaped boot prints from Hickok on the same surface, prints that were not initially discernible powerful evidence on their own. These photos became even more important when Hickok was confronted with them after his arrest. During his initial interrogation in Las Vegas by KBI agents Harold Nye and Roy Church, initially sticking to the alibi that both men had previously agreed on, Hickok claimed for hours that he and Smith had spent the weekend of the clutter murders in Fort Scott, Kansas, attempting to locate Smith's sister, who owed him money. When confronted with Rolletter's photos and the matching pair of boots, which law enforcement had only recently obtained, Hickok crumbled and attempted to implicate Perry in all four of the murders, admitting that he was present, but also attempting to avoid an arrest for first-degree murder. Smith initially continued to deny his involvement, but when confronted with Hickok's confession, also admitted that he was involved, despite his initial claim that he only killed the male members of the Clutter family. In essence, Rich Rolletter not only personally collected the most important piece of forensic evidence in the case, but also was chiefly responsible for eliciting confessions from both suspects, confessions that essentially rendered any trial a formality. For this contribution, Rolletter was mentioned in a single paragraph by Capote, in which the investigator is briefly credited. His investigative photographic skill described as a, quote, hobby, unquote. Rolletter would not be the only official involved to receive short shrift. Depictions and attention in the book usually revolved around an individual's willingness to either provide information or socialize with Truman Capote and Rich Rolletter was one of several law enforcement officials who was not interested in either endeavor. By the time the two suspects were returned to Garden City, Capote had so ingratiated himself with Alvin Dewey that he was granted a privilege denied to every other journalist covering the clutter case, interview access to Hickok and Smith. This would not be the only benefit granted by Dewey, but it was extremely significant. The egotistical, verbose Hickok was an easy subject for Capote, who drained him of as much information as possible. But Perry Smith was initially wary, ultimately fascinated by Capote, and insecure about a lack of a formal education that a man of letters would be interested in conversing with him. Smith then also established a close relationship After getting this exclusive access, Capote then returned to New York with Harper Lee, as there was nothing for him to do but wait for the trial, scheduled for March 22, 1960. Upon their return to Garden City, Hickok and Smith were placed in different cells of the Finney County Jail, which occupied the fourth and top floor of the county courthouse building. According to In Cold Blood, Perry Smith developed a special relationship with the jailer Wendell Myers' wife, Josephine. Unlike Hickok, who she disliked, Josephine was said to have developed a special rapport with Smith, even cooking him his favorite meal, Spanish rice, to attempt to assuage the depressing circumstances that enmeshed both defendants. Their legal situation was untenable. The only possible issues whether to seek a change of venue and attempting to wage an insanity defense. While both of their court-appointed defense attorneys, Arthur Fleming and Harrison Smith, 
were experienced and capable individuals. They were hamstrung by the massive weight of evidence and especially the detailed confessions confronting them and their clients. They ultimately decided against a change of venue, reasoning that the entire state of Kansas was fully aware of the case and perhaps a deeply devout community might spare their clients based on biblical precepts regarding forgiveness and mercy. At the time, Kansas was governed by the McNaughton Rule regarding insanity, the defendant's only consideration whether or not he understood the basic concept of right and wrong. Highlights of the prosecutor's case were the testimony of Floyd Wells and Alvin Dewey. Wells detailed how he shared a cell with Hickok and told him about the Clutter Farm and its wealthy proprietor. He was justifiably cagey about whether he specifically told Hickok about a safe, and when challenged by the defense as to why he didn't attempt to prevent the crime, he stated that he never believed Hickok would actually go through with it. And when asked why he subsequently came forward, Wells responded simply that while he was surprised, the crime was carried out just as Dick Hickok told Wells he would carry it out. Although Wells claimed he never told Hickok specifically about a safe and merely referred to Herb Clutter as a wealthy man, most likely the state of Kansas knew that this was probably untrue and allowed Wells to perjure himself. Wells's testimony was crucial, and if Wells had given more specific information, the defense might have asked why he wasn't being charged as a co-conspirator. This was not the only benefit that Wells received from the state of Kansas, but it would be after the trial that he was rewarded additionally. Although the governor of the state refused an outright pardon, Floyd Wells was immediately transferred from the Kansas State Penitentiary to a low-security reformatory and quietly released five weeks later in May of 1960, more than two years before his official previous parole eligibility. He also collected a $1,000 reward. Although Wells provided a motive, Alvin Dewey's testimony was probably the most damaging of the trial, the first time details of the murder were publicly released, including Dick Hickok's additional motivation for committing the crime. Much of this information came from Smith's conversation with Dewey as the KBI traveled with Smith from Las Vegas to Garden City after the arrest. Smith was initially uncooperative, but when he heard from Dewey that Hickok had not only confessed, had attempted to pin all four murders on Smith, and revealed that Smith had previously murdered someone in Nevada years ago, Smith became enraged. One of the reasons that Hickok wanted Smith as his partner in crime was that Smith claimed to have actually killed someone, a black man he supposedly beat to death with a bicycle chain in Las Vegas. But the story was false, and the fact that Hickok would rat him out in a completely unrelated incident not only infuriated Perry, but made him realize that it was now every man for himself. Foolishly, from a legal perspective, he then recounted in detail for Dewey and the other KBI agent driving what exactly occurred at the Clutter home on the night of the murders. According to Perry, Hickok seemed to have had a reasonably good idea where the farm was because he had little trouble finding the long driveway that led to the main house, 400 miles from Hickok's home in Edgerton. Arriving shortly after midnight on the morning of November 15th, a full moon completely illuminated both the clutter home and the expansive series of barns, which Smith said excited Hickok, Dick thinking the proprietor of such a spread had to possess a great deal of money. 
With no need for headlights, Hickok shut them and the car engine off and parked behind a tree, allowing the two men to appraise the situation. Suddenly, a light came on in a house approximately 100 yards from the clutter home. On only briefly, it still caught their attention. The two criminals did not know it, but this was a smaller residence occupied by Alfred Stecklin, a ranch hand living at River Valley Farm as a condition of his employment. Unbeknownst to Hickok and Smith, Stecklin's wife was nursing a sick infant who kept the couple awake for the entire night. When the light came on again, only a few minutes later, Smith got spooked. He told Hickok he wanted no part of moving forward. The occupants of the house would clearly hear any gunshots. Hickok actually started the car and turned it around, intent on leaving. But after only driving halfway up the driveway, he stopped. Angrily, he told Smith that even if he had to do it alone, he wasn't leaving such an easy score behind. Both men had a drink from a thermos of vodka screwdrivers they had already been consuming along the way. This seemed to calm Smith down, and he then agreed to accompany Hickok inside the house. They parked the car back in the original spot, both men donning gloves, and Hickok putting on a hunting vest and hat as a potential ruse to claim that they were lost hunters in the event they had to knock on a locked door and trick their way inside the house. But such skullduggery was unnecessary. They entered the home through an unlocked side door. Most inhabitants of that part of western Kansas never locked their doors, never suspecting that the likes of Hickok and Smith would come calling. The side entrance led to what was clearly Herb Clutter's office, a large desk facing the doorway. The two men waited to hear if anyone had detected their entrance, but the only sound was of a substantial wind rustling the leaves of nearby trees. Smith closed the Venetian blinds, and Hickok turned on a large flashlight. The safe was allegedly right behind the desk, mounted in the wall, but only paneling and some bookshelves were apparent. Hickok decided to go find Mr. Clutter, who was actually sleeping in a first-floor bedroom. He and his wife slept separately as a result of her constant depression and general malaise. Hickok opened the bedroom door and shined the flashlight inside. Herb Clutter was asleep and at first confused before sitting up and asking what the men wanted. Quietly, Hickok told him they needed to speak with him in his office. Clutter got out of bed and dressed only in pajamas, accompanied the men across the first floor, and then sat at his office desk. Hickok immediately asked him about the location of the safe. Without hesitating, and with a great deal of confusion, Herb Clutter replied, What safe? Calm up to this point, Hickok then pointed the knife directly at Clutter's chest, threatening him if he didn't come across with the safe's location. During this exchange, Smith didn't say a word, he set about severing any phone lines on the first floor, one in the office and one in the kitchen. Despite Hickok's threats, Herb Clutter kept calmly denying that there was a safe, and Smith immediately believed him. Nevertheless, Hickok then conveyed Clutter back to the bedroom and removed the contents of the farmer's wallet, about $30 in cash. Aggressively, he began to berate Clutter, continuing to claim he was lying about the safe and then asking if his wife had any cash. All three men proceeded upstairs, Hickok nastily telling Clutter to shut up when the farmer pleaded for the two criminals to not upset his fragile wife. Despite her husband's reassurance that Hickok and Smith only wanted money, 
Bonnie Clutter immediately got upset and said she didn't have much cash. Hickok then retrieved her purse and removed any money, literally no more than a few single-dollar bills and some change. Both Clutters continued to repeatedly deny a safe's existence. Perry Smith finally asked Dick to speak to him in the hallway, out of the couple's earshot. Smith was emphatic, telling Hickok that whatever information Wells gave him, he was wrong. There was no safe. Hickok was adamant that there had to be a safe, that they would lock the parents and the two children in the bathroom and search the entire house for it. After they found it, Hickok said that they should cut the clutter's throats. A shotgun would be too loud. They put the clutters in the bathroom, got Nancy and Kenyon Clutter out of bed, and shoved them in there as well. At least Perry Smith providing a chair for Bonnie Clutter to sit on. The only thing they found were some silver dollars in Nancy Clutter's purse, which Smith pocketed, as well as a small portable radio and a pair of binoculars that Smith transported to the car, momentarily contemplating leaving the scene entirely, hitchhiking his way out of the situation, wanting to be anywhere but back inside the clutter house. But he ignored this impulse, returning inside, where he began to separate the family, taking first Herb Clutter and then Kenyon Clutter to the basement, tying them both up, the father, his hands and feet bound with rope, placed in a cardboard mattress box, the son tied to a couch, a pillow placed behind his head for comfort. Then Bonnie Clutter was tied up in her bedroom, her legs bound and her hands tied in front of her. When Perry Smith got to Nancy Clutter's bedroom, Dick Hickok was already there, talking quietly with a 16-year-old girl. Smith, knowing of Hickok's proclivities towards teenage females, he brusquely told his accomplice to go search for the safe while Smith tied up the girl. Smith sat for a while and conversed with Nancy Clutter, growing more disgusted with both Hickok and the situation by the minute. The continued tapping on the walls from downstairs merely underlining how pathetic the situation was. Hickok finally returned, his only discovery $7 in another purse downstairs. It was at this point in his testimony that Alvin Dewey publicly revealed an aspect of the crime that must have further shocked the local population. As a diversion for Hickok, Smith asked him to help tape the mouth of Mrs. Clutter. After leaving her bedroom, they proceeded to Nancy Clutter's bedroom, but not before Hickok told Smith that he intended to rape the 16-year-old. Perry Smith immediately became hostile and told Dick he would have to literally kill him first. And taken aback, Hickok said Smith could rape her as well. Again, Smith made it clear that he would not allow that to happen. Realizing Smith was serious, Hickok backed off, but not before saying something that had dire repercussions for both them and the clutters. Quote, okay, honey, if that's the way you feel, unquote, emphasizing the word honey to question both Smith's manhood as well as possibly his sexuality. Smith seemed to ignore the comment, and they proceeded to the basement to tape the mouths of the two clutter males. And then a critical moment transpired where the two men discussed what they should do next. Smith subsequently maintained that the issue was no longer about the clutters. It was really Smith demonstrating to Hickok that he was the tougher of the two and that Hickok was actually a coward who didn't have the guts to kill anybody. Smith asked Hickok for the knife, stating that even if they didn't kill anyone, that they were looking at a long prison sentence if they were caught, presuming that Dick would try to talk him out of it. But Hickok didn't say a word. 
and almost reflexively Smith leaned down and cut Herb Clutter's throat. Although mortally injured, the farmer struggled to get out of his restraints until Perry Smith handed the knife to Dick to finish the job. He couldn't do it, and probably to emphasize which of the two was the bigger man, Perry Smith then told Hickok to shine his flashlight on Herb Clutter's face, aimed the shotgun, and pulled the trigger. Although he claimed he merely wanted to put Herb Clutter out of his misery, Smith then proceeded to shoot Kenyon Clutter. And while this has always been a matter of dispute, most likely Smith also proceeded upstairs, where he shot first Nancy and then Bonnie Clutter. One can only imagine the terror of the victims as they waited to be slaughtered one by one, knowing what was coming. At least Hickok participated by picking up the expended shotgun shells following Smith from room to room. When they were done, they waited quietly in the darkened house to see if anyone nearby heard what they believed to be incredibly loud gunshots. The only sound was the wind in the trees. Nobody came, and they suddenly bolted for the car and headed back towards Kansas City, stopping only to bury the shotgun shells and other incriminating evidence in a shallow hole on the side of the highway. Once the prosecutor's case was completed, court was adjourned. Thank you for listening to part one of this podcast about Truman Capote et al., Much of the information for this podcast came from the books Capote, a biography by Gerald Clark. Truman Capote, in which friends, enemies, acquaintances, and detractors recall his turbulent career by George Plimpton. In Cold Blood by Truman Capote. And Every Word is True by Gary McAvoy. In addition, the journalism published in the Wall Street Journal by Kevin Helliker especially an article entitled Capote Classic in Cold Blood, Tainted by Long Lost Files, published on February 8, 2013. There are also additional photographs, bibliographical and musical information at someveryfamouspeople.com. If you have enjoyed this presentation, please like us at our Facebook page, Some Very Famous People, and follow us on Twitter at Philip D. Gibbons, Subscribe to my YouTube page at Noblesse Oblige, and also rate us on iTunes. And if you have the time, leave a brief review. A link is provided at the website.